family, we should be live. It is wonderful to be with everyone tonight. As always, please give us a thumbs up in the chat. That way I know that you can hear us. Everything is running. Um, it is great to be here again with uh, Pete Garcia and Mondo Gonzalez. How are you brothers doing tonight? Doing great, man. You're good. Awesome. Okay, we see the thumbs up. Sharon Nelson, thank you very much. Um, so guys, listen, this video tonight, uh, we've titled in the, uh, the eternal gospel. And this video is essentially a follow-up to our previous video we did on, uh, hyper dispensationalism, the gospel, uh, things like that. And so we wanted to do a part two to kind of just give further clarification. And, um, I'm, I'm excited that Pete and Mondo could join us again tonight to, to talk over this subject. It's a really important and interesting and encouraging topic. And so um, to start off, to just get right into it, Pete and Mondo um, are going to kind of go over some definitions that I think will be helpful for, for the discussion tonight. And um, so I'll hand that over to, I guess, you, Pete, if you want to start with that. And do you want me to pull up that first slide? Uh, yeah, if you want to. Okay. All right. I somehow have just lost it. <laughs> I got it. All right. So I know, I know last week after our, uh, our video, there was a ton of, um, um, misinformed statements and, and, you know, things that are going around out there. So I really wanted, I thought it was important to put this definition out of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight and how they, a lot of them seem similar in a lot of ways. And, and I would say probably even amongst the three major camps here, um, we agree on the core doctrines of our faith. We agree on the, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, um, the triune Godhead. Um, we we all have a view of eschatology, and I think I think where we disagree, some of them are, are pretty significant points, but they're not salvific points. They're not things that if you believe wrongly on, you're going to go to hell for. So um, we bring these up primarily because of uh, the process of sanctification for maturing in the faith. And it's important for people to understand um, uh, what the Bible teaches. And, and so we're just going to, I'm going to lay these out. Um, these are from the, uh, Theopa, Theopedia. 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 <laughs> I always struggle with that word. Um, and so it is pretty much a, I would assume, a, a pretty neutral um, place to grab a definition from. So we're going to go over, let's talk about dispensationalism. It's a theological system that teaches biblical history, is best understood in light of a number of successive administrations of God's dealing with mankind, which it calls dispensations. It maintains fundamental distinction between God's plan for national Israel and for the New Testament church, emphasizes prophecy of the end times and a pre-tribulation rapture of the church prior to Christ's second coming. It's beginning is usually associated with the Plymouth Brethren movement in the UK and the teachings of John Nelson Darby. For hyper dispensationalism, or sometimes called ultra dispensationalism, as opposed to traditional or classic dispensationalism, views the start of the church as beginning with the ministry of Paul after 
to the early part of the book of Acts. Although variations exist in specifics, all hyper-dispensationalists view the four Gospels and many New Testament epistles as applying to the pre-Pauline Jewish Christian church or to the future Davidic kingdom and not directly applicable to the predominantly Gentile church of today. By way of distinctions, it is noted that classical dispensationalists accept both baptism and the Lord's Supper as applicable to the church. Mid-Acts or hyper-dispensationalists reject baptism, and in the Acts 28, ultra-dispensationalists reject both baptism and Lord's Supper. And then with covenant theology, it teaches that God has established two great covenants with mankind and a covenant within the Godhead to deal with how the other two relate. The first covenant in logical order, usually called the covenant of redemption, is the agreement uh, within the Godhead that the Father would appoint his son Jesus to give up his life for mankind and that Jesus would do, would do so. The second, called the covenant of works, was made in the Garden of Eden between God and Adam and promised life for obedience and death for disobedience. Adam disobeyed God and broke the covenant, and so the third covenant was made between God and all mankind who also fell with Adam according to Romans 12, 21. The third covenant, the covenant of grace, promised eternal blessings for, for belief in Christ and obedience to God's word. It is thus seen as the basis for all biblical covenants that God made individually with Noah, Abraham, and David, and nationally with Old Testament Israel as a people, and universally with man in the new covenant. These individual covenants are called the biblical covenants because they are explicitly described as such in the Bible. So just a quick summary of the three dispensationalism. Again, we all share the same belief that Christ is God in the flesh, that the Bible is inerrant, and that God is triune in nature. There are the disagreements are where dispensationalism sees God's outworking through seven different stages of mankind through progressive revelation. Covenant theology really only sees two. There's a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. And when they failed that, the covenant of grace came in. And, and we've basically been under this covenant of grace ever since. And then hyper-dispensationalism, um, or really ultra-dispensationalism, is a var variation on when the church starts. So we all believe that Acts is a transitional book with regards to um, you know, the outworkings of God in the Bible. We, classical and uh, revised and progressive dispensationalists, would see this, the start of the, this present dis dispensation as beginning with Acts 2 at Pentecost. And they would see it starting either between Acts 9 uh, with the ministry of Paul or later in Acts 28. Yeah, great, great. And Mondo, do you have anything to, to share here on this topic as well? Uh, <clears throat> a couple things. The... In, in the covenant of theology down there. Uh, oh, do you want me to bring it back up? That, yeah, just for, for the sake of people looking. No problem. But one of the things that I probably would maybe disagree with right there in the Theopedia um, definition is down on the bottom, it talks about uh, the covenant within the Godhead. I think that's a logical deduction, which I wouldn't disagree with that. Of course, God's in eternity past. Uh, he knows what he's going to do, as we'll talk later, you mm -hmm. know, it wasn't a surprise or an afterthought that Jesus would die on the cross uh, for his people. 
But it says there, these individual covenants are called the biblical covenants because they are explicitly described in the Bible as such. That's not necessarily true because uh, there's no place where there's a covenant of works. I, I know in some of our conversations, people had made an accusation that we were covenant theologians, nope. which was shocking um, because, again, for a lot of reasons, but the there's no way in any, in any way that we're covenant theologians, especially because... There is no covenant of works mentioned in the in Genesis one through three anywhere. Um, so to say that it's explicit, that's not true. They might make a logical inference, and that's that's fine if they want to try that. Uh, I'm talking about from a covenant theologian perspective. But the other one, even the covenant of grace, um, that's not specifically spelled out as let's say, for example. You go to Genesis 9 where it talks about God says to Noah, I'm going to make my covenant with you or to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you using that language. Because here's why it's important. In dispensationalism, uh, many of the ages, the dispensations are based on covenants that are made and spoken of relatively explicitly. Uh, eight covenants that you have in the Bible. And so many of them are outworkings of the Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation. So th that's all. So I, I just want to say, because people might go on the bottom of the covenant theolo theology is, well, those are explicit. No, I, I don't agree with that. But the other thing I want to say is that too often the word heresy gets thrown around a, a little bit too uh, casually because the, the word heresy is a theological construct that was brought about from church history um, really in the sense of uh, historical doctrine. Uh, the word heresy specifically, as we understand today, does not appear, in the, especially in the New Testament. It does appear um, in the, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, it appears in Galatians 5, talking about heresies, but th that's not the best translation because there, uh, it, it, the word is just, it's faction or divisions or dissensions. But th the point being is that theologically speaking, what is a heresy? So if somebody is a, uh, <clears throat> let's say somebody's a, a post-trib person, uh, I'm not going to call them a heretic. Uh, if somebody believes in infant baptism, a covenant theologian, I'm not going to call them a heretic. Um, I might disagree with those positions, but to throw out a label um, of heresy, a heresy, again, historical theology is something that puts you outside of salvation. Um, it primarily has to do with the gospel, as, as Pete mentioned, salvific. That means uh, such things that relate with specifically salvation. So that's important that, um, that a lot of covenant theologians, I love them. They're, they're saved. They're going to heaven. I would disagree with them strongly on some of the things, but I'm not going to call them a heretic uh, in that regard. So that's important. Let, let's, let's be nice to one another. Let's not throw around labels, especially in the um, non-essential issues. Now, one of the things that... It, is going to come up is the idea of the gospel. And that is where it goes into a whole different realm in, in the sense of Galatians 1, 7 through 9, discussing if anybody comes with you with a different gospel than what Paul had preached, let them be accursed. Now you're talking about serious condemnation by Paul being a representative of God. That's heresy. So yeah. let's, let's reserve that. And maybe if, if we're dealing and we'll make, we could allow eventually the, the ultra dispensation or the hyper dispensations themselves, if they are going to be promoting a, a gospel of faith plus works, then there's going to be some serious disagreement there, but they probably would say, no, we don't teach that, <laughs> but 
nevertheless, it's good to be charitable, but let's not be calling each other heretics. It's, that's, it's kind of, unfortunately, a little bit childish and immature, and it's not accurate uh, from a theological perspective. Yeah. But, well, and that's, that's one of the things I think that's really beneficial about going over these types of things, you know, recognizing the difference between dispensationalism and hyper ultra dispensationalism and covenant theology, because with these, and by the way, to make it clear for everyone here, uh, us three, we would fall into the, the dispensationalism category. We would not be hyper ultra dispensationalists. We would not be covenant theology. Um, and the error that I see rising up a lot of the time from things like hyper ultra dispensationalism is they start to say, well, you know, they'll claim we teach grace, uh, salvation by grace through faith. But they'll say in different dispensations, though, people were saved by their works plus their faith. And so they did earn part of their salvation by their works. In, but they qualify by saying those are in different dispensations. And so you really start to have error creep in because what you're doing is you're saying that uh, at certain times people can and have the ability to earn uh, part of their salvation. Mm -hmm. And and that's a really serious error that can start to creep in. And so that's that's one of the reasons why we want to go over this these topics tonight <laughs> and define things and clarify things, because I think it's very important that we do rightly divide scripture, that we do take scripture seriously, like uh, Chuck Missler always used to say, and and have clarity on these matters. So yeah. if you don't mind, I'd love to say one more thing, just in the sense of we all recognize the uh, the challenge or the problems of labels, um, because labels yeah. are at the end of the day, I don't want to be even labeled a dispensationalist. I, right. I want to be labeled a biblical Christian, but yeah. because there are those um, there are people who are dispensational, but maybe they have a different view of salvation than I might or whatever. And so let's make sure that we understand that dispensationalism is really founded upon three principles, taking a literal hermeneutic of scripture, understanding that the church and Israel are distinct <coughs> and that all things are done for the glory of God. And those three things are the foundation, the three pillars of dispensationalism. Now, you might have some people who, let's say, are charismatic dispensationalists, some who are not charismatic. And so you have all these other flavors. But so be careful if, if people are listening not to go, oh, a dispensationalist is automatically a, a charismatic or baptizes children or whatever. So if a dispensationalist, at least what I'll hold up to is those three pillars, literal hermeneutic, Israel and the church are distinct and for the glory of God. Other than that, even us three, we might have various views on things, but they're not necessarily related specifically to being dispensational. I completely agree. A lot of times terms and categories can can be a real uh, problem themselves because you, you, you start to say, well, I'm, you know, I, I identify with this t category. And then someone runs across another person who says they're that category and they're teaching just complete error in some other area. And so they start to think, well, you must believe that also. And categories can get crazy. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, well, so we, we kind of give some definitions there. And what we want to do now is we're going to go, we're going to lay some foundation here tonight for, for our study. So we're going to go over some scriptures. And we want to show you guys tonight that in scripture, the Bible is very clear that there is an eternal gospel that God has always had the, the same plan 
for salvation, of, of how he was going to justify mankind, how he was going to save mankind. And uh, the scriptures make this very plain and very clear. So we're going to go over some scriptures dealing with the eternal gospel tonight. And um, I was going to just start off with Revelation 13, verse 8. And then we'll, we'll go into more scriptures. But this is actually one of the scriptures where someone who would be like hyper or ultra dispensational will take this and say, see, this is a different gospel. But that, that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches an eternal gospel. And, and people um, learn progressively the gospel unfolds over time. And so we're going to go through all of this. And I think it, I hope it's going to become very clear and, and easy to grasp and understand if you'll watch this entire video. So I'm going to start with Revelation 13, 8. And it says, this is speaking about uh, during the tribulation period time. And there's an angel that flies over the entire world. And it says, proclaims to the world and all who dwell on the earth. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a different scripture. This is Revelation 13, 8. Uh, not, this is not where the angel is proclaiming to the world. This is um, where it's speaking about the Antichrist and the beast in Revelation 13. 14. But it says, all, will dwell, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the Antichrist. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the li in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So right here it's saying, before the foundation of the world, People's names were written in the book of the Lamb's book of life. The Lord knew all who would be his. And um, this is this is absolutely incredible. We're just going to go over more and more scripture here for you guys to see how God has always had this eternal gospel plan. Uh, Mondo, would you like to read one? Yeah. Go ahead. Tell me which one am I, am I uh, reading? Well, uh, I mean, you brought up um, Acts 4, 4, 27 through 28. Oh. Yeah, go, go ahead and read it and then. Okay. Because um, I, I don't have it in front of me, I'm sorry. Well, I'll read a different one and then you can, and you can, or I'll read it for you. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So also go ahead and read first Peter one 19, I think, and then, then we can talk about that and what it means. Good. First Peter one 19 through 21 says, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for you, <clears throat> for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So <clears throat> I'll mention a couple things here because one of the things that we discussed last time was, and I'll add in Hebrews 9.22, which says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So blood for the forgiveness of sins is the absolute foundation for all forgiveness of any kind in any age. Now, we understand that for Noah to be forgiven, uh, Genesis 6, 9 says Noah found grace. Uh, but we know that even for Noah to be forgiven for his sin required blood. Now, we, we also recognize in Hebrews 10, basically 1 through 4, 
that the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to remove sin. So, oh, do we have a contradiction? No. What we recognize is, as we see in First Peter, Peter's recognizing, and he mentions the blood of Jesus specifically foreordained. So in God's mind, clearly Jesus was uh, offering up, <clears throat> he was going to offer up his life. He was going to come down in a moment of time to be born under the law, etc. But that's why we say that the basis of salvation from eternity to eternity is always the death of Christ. So the people in the Old Testament, they were forgiven, but they were forgiven technically on credit as they were looking forward to the Jesus's once and final sacrifice. And now if somebody gets saved, well, it, the blood has already been spilled by Jesus. And so we can have that. But the and we see this in Romans four. Uh, Romans 4 says very clear that God had um, over, he, he, it says that there, in the times past, he let it kind of accumulate until the point of being Jesus paying off the debt. And then from this point forward, we have an open line of credit, so to speak. So the blood has always been there. It's always been in the mind of God. Peter tells us it's always by the blood of Christ. I'd add Titus 3, 5, that not by works of righteousness are we saved. You know, Galatians 2, 15, not by the works of the law. Romans 4 says something very similar. So I, I, we're, I'm not sure how much clearer we can be, not so much us, but the scripture, that it's not, we're not saved by works in any age at all. I mean, I, I, I don't know how we can get it even more clear. I, I think it's really important, guys, that you understand everything that, that God had, um, the, the Israelites doing, Abraham, Moses, everything that they were doing, was a prof prophetic foreshadowing of Christ that the, the law was given so that they could realize there was no way that they could attain to it. And they needed a perfect sinless savior to come in. And so the, all these things that they were doing, like you said, you know, with the, the blood of bulls and rams, these things can't justify, they can't uh, justify a person, but they were prophetic foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment of that, even, you know, Paul says that these things were types and shadows of what was to come and the fullness is in Christ. And so all of these things that were going on back in these times in the Old Testament, you know, before this time that we're in now where, where Christ has already died on the cross, these things were forward looking to Jesus. And uh, we have we have more scriptures here that talk about an eternal gospel, but uh, Pete, did you want to make any comments here before we moved on, on, on just more scriptures? Yeah, let me read from Ephesians 1. Oh, yeah, great. 4 and 5. So speaking to the eternal gospel, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption uh, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So. Yes, this was yeah. always been the plan. And we're going to we're going to really make this clear, I hope, for you guys even more. We have visual charts and presentations that we're going to show you here in a moment. But we just wanted to, to lay some groundwork here with some more scriptures. Um, I also have. Revelation 14, 6 through 7, this is the one I thought I was starting with about the angel that's flying over the whole world during the tribulation period. And this is what it says. 
It says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the, the sea and the springs of water. Now, there's, there's two things I want to point out here, and I know Mondo is going to want to jump in here on, on this one as well. But um, first of all, you need to notice here, it says with an eternal gospel, an eternal thing does not does not start somewhere. You, you understand, like this eternal gospel didn't just all of a sudden pop into being at this moment in the tribulation period. This is the eternal gospel. This is the, an angel proclaiming an eternal truth. Uh, this is what has always been God's plan, and he's proclaiming it to the whole world now. And the other thing I want you to notice is that it says, fear God, give him glory. Now, there are those who are like would be in the hyper or ultra camp of dispensation who would say, see, this is a different gospel. That is not the case at all. We can show you in scripture how these commands fear God and giving God glory are directly spoken to the church as well. That's, this is not a different gospel. Mm, these are perfectly at home and harmonized with the, the gospel, the same gospel that we believe in. So, Mondo, I know you want to comment on this one as well. Well, you, you had a good intro there because um, oftentimes we think in terms of here, here's a starting point and then it goes eternally this way um we're thinking in a linear way but so you and i you know i was born in 1974 so was pete i think and uh we're we're going to live eternally somewhere right heaven or hell but that doesn't mean because i started at a point and i'm going to live eternally in a linear line that i'm an eternal being right but the bible doesn't speak in those terms when it speaks of eternal gospel we just read the passages that again, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God who cannot lie, who promised before time began, Titus 1, 2. We have all these scriptures, Romans 8, 29, that whom he foreknew, he predestined. And then we see that Jesus was predestined and he was foreknown in eternity. So we have this eternal plan that includes the blood. We already saw that, right, in 1 Peter 1. So we, we need to make sure that we are careful in our words because also, let me give you an example. We, we know that... 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, that I'm going to give you the gospel, which I received. Jesus died, was buried according to the scriptures, was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen, right? Well, we see that as that's a pretty good formulation of the gospel. But what about in Acts chapter 16, uh, 30 and 31, where Paul's talking to the Philippian jailer, and he says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, whoa, whoa, Paul. You didn't mention Jesus' death. You didn't mention the resurrection. You know, uh, didn't mention his blood, didn't mention his blood. So what we have in scriptures, we've got to be careful in how we do hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word that means how we interpret the Bible. <laughs> and so we also we recognize that Luke, who's writing, um, he, he's giving these summary statements. He doesn't need to write every last word that appeared in the Acts 16 situation in the same way. We there's no reason to force that this is the only words that the angel's saying necessarily. He's given a summary of the gospel and really no different than what Paul was doing to the Philippian jailer. So sometimes I think we force something and, and say, well, this must be a different gospel because he didn't mention the blood or the resurrection. Well, either did Paul. 
and, and so many other, we could give a, a, a whole bunch of other examples on oh, this, yeah. but the idea of an eternal gospel is one that goes from all the way eternity that way, all the way eternity that way. And when you've given the verses to show that it absolutely is a gospel from the foundation before time began within the mind of God and in the intentions of God with the death of Christ. Yep. Yep. The, the gospel is eternal. Uh, you and I are created beings and God has given us an eternal inheritance, but the gospel is eternal because it is, is from an eternal God. It was his plan. This is not something that pops up randomly or, or not randomly, but pops up all of a sudden in the tribulation period that this angel is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the eternal gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, let's read another scripture. We, we've got several more here. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God had this plan. When the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son, Jesus, and he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. We also have Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What was God's purpose? The gospel. The God's, God's purpose was to redeem mankind. He said, I will accomplish my purpose. We also have Titus 1, 1 through 2. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Before the ages began, God promised this. And then, uh, actually, Mondo, Pete, you guys want to chime in there before move on? Is there anything you want to say about those particular scriptures? Well, I just, you know, I, I, I think that, um, let me dovetail back real quick on what Mondo was saying about hermeneutics. We have the same Bible. Um, you know, we have different translations, but for the most part, we have the same Bible and everybody is coming to different conclusions about the same words that are there. So this all ties into how we understand words and eternal has to mean <laughs> eternal. It mm-hmm. can't mean uh, temporary or new. Right. So when this angel in, in Revelation 14, uh, was it 14, eight is proclaiming the eternal gospel. It's yeah, not right. saying what he's, he's not, it's not saying that he, he's not, you know, it's just saying that he's proclaiming the eternal gospel. But the angel, what he's actually going to be saying, he's not flying around the heavens saying the eternal gospel, the eternal gospel. No, he's saying Jesus Christ is salvation is only through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what he's saying. Right. We're getting we're getting the abbreviated version in the verse there. But he is he's saying that Christ is the only way to salvation, that Jesus yeah. is the only way to salvation, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's flying through the air saying that. The passage just says what he's declaring, but what he's actually declaring is that. 
that there is no other way but Jesus Christ. So I think that I think that we, you know, just get uh, not we, but I think a lot of groups get caught up in semantics and they want to overemphasize things that that aren't there or they want to kind of twist things to what they want it to be. But um, when you really just think through what you're saying and in, in, in promoting and saying that there's different gospels for different, you know, dispensations, um, I think that's I think that's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's error. It really is. And, and that's why we want to be really clear and try and be precise tonight, because when you understand this concept that scripture lays out for us, that there is one gospel and it is an eternal gospel from an eternal God who has um, said he will accomplish his purpose. And he declared the end from the beginning. When you understand that, a lot of these things become a little bit more simple to grasp. You understand, okay, wait a minute. There's not different di uh, gospels for every dispensation. God's not saying, okay, now you got to do this to be saved. And now I'm going to make another gospel here. There's one gospel. But as you're going to see here in a moment, mm -hmm. it, was, it was progressively revealed. They progressively understood, humankind progressively understood the fullness of God's plan as the fullness of God's plan played out over time. And it is, it's always had the same plan, the same gospel. It's just progressively played out over time and been revealed over time. You know, it might be good to read, I don't know if we have them, but um, Hebrews 4, verse 2, and I think, do we have Galatians, I believe it's 4, 7? I can, I can bring them up. So Hebrews 4, verse 2 says, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the word good news there is the same evangelion. It's the word gospel. Some translations say gospel. And it, he's, talk, he's talking specifically about the unbelief of the wilderness generation that wandered for 40 years. And he says, hey, the gospel was given to them just as it was to us. Mm -hmm. So here you have this continuity <clears throat> Of, of a gospel of the good news that was given to the wilderness generation, just like it was to us. And then of course the writer's making a point there about what's required faith, mm -hmm. faith. And then in Galatians four, we have, I think we mentioned this last time about the gospel being preached to Abraham. And what's that rallied around faith. Yep. I have that one. Let, let me read. Uh, let me read that one. Let's see. Galatians. Um, Let's see. Actually, this Galatians 3, 7 through 9 3, says, 7, yep. yeah, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Again, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, read that really slowly. Preached the gospel to Abraham. Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, wait a minute. You might say, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That, that's not the gospel. There's nothing about Jesus on the cross there. That's because Abraham, he didn't know yet the fullness of God's plan. It was being revealed. But the scripture says, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Yep. I think if we, if we bring it down to brass tacks that 
the content of the gospel, like we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus's death and resurrection, certainly is post Jesus's death. But if we talk about the foundation of the good news forever, the eternal gospel, um, we know that from the beginning, like here, it, right in the beginning, Genesis 15, it's it's connected with faith, as we saw in Hebrews 4. So that's why it's important that when we understand that terminology, that typical dispensational terminology, that the, the death of Christ in every dispensation or the, the basis for salvation in every age is the death of Christ. It's the blood. But the the requirement for salvation in every age is faith. It appears right in Genesis 15. And the, the, the faith, the, the object of that faith is always God. We, we have our faith is in God. It's not in our works. Right. That's very specific. It's not in our own um, abilities. We know that we're all sinners and that our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, is as filthy rags. So it's fascinating that there's there's none righteous. No, not one. So the the object of our faith is not in ourselves. It's in God and what he's doing. And then it, this is what we're going to see in the next graph, that the content of that faith changes based on what God is revealing uh, throughout the ages through progressive revelation. And so he's, he didn't just slap the Bible down one day and say, here you go. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ with blood and three days. He, he did it step by step. And so we'll, we'll be able to ask the question, well, what did it take for Adam to be saved or Enoch to be saved or Noah? And again, the requirement is always faith. But what does that faith entail? What's the knowledge there? That's what we'll be able to explain. Amen. Um, so, so listen, guys, the old we're going to get into it now. The Old Testament folks, they didn't believe in different gospels than we believe in now. They believed in the same God we believe in now. The Bible says that Jesus, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Um, the Bible says God doesn't change. Malachi 3, verse 6. And Jesus also said to the Pharisees, um, before Abraham was, I am. I believe that was in John. Uh, let me look the reference up for that. Um, that is John 8.58. Yeah, 8.58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they believed in the same God uh, that we do now. And the same God who had the same plan of salvation from the very beginning. So the Old Testament folks did not believe in an altogether different gospel. Rather, it was just less of the story than what we know now. They believed in part of the coming whole. It's not a separate altogether thing. And so I want to show you this graph that I was praying on this topic and I was asking the Lord, Lord, give me a, what do I do to try and help people grasp this concept clearly? And I, I was, the Lord reminded my heart about how Jesus would use parables. And so I wanted to have a visual parable to show you guys. And so this is a visual parable. This is a chart for you to see. And what, this is the moon. Okay. These all represent the moon, these, these crescents and circles. So you have the eternal gospel here at the top. This is the moon. And then you have a little new moon, and then it grows brighter and brighter and brighter until it gets to the full moon. So listen, guys, when there is a moon, okay, a moon goes through phases. 
you can go outside. So we have seven different dispensations listed here. You can go outside seven different nights during the cycle of a moon, and you can see seven different looking moons. Now, those are not seven different planets you're seeing. There's one moon, but you're seeing it progressively illuminate from a sliver of a new moon to a full moon. The whole time it's been the one moon, but it has been progressively illuminating over time. And so I overlaid that over these dispensations, which we're about to get into. And, and Pete has some fantastic graphs mm -hmm. that show even more information. This is my very boiled down, like kindergarten level one that I did, because that's how I like to process things. It's extremely simple. And so you can see we've got these dispensations listed below pre-fall, pre-flood, post-flood, Abraham, Moses, which would be like the law. Then you have the cross, the last days, and the um, thousand-year millennial reign. So these are what you know we would look at as the seven dispensations that we kind of recognize make sense um, in kind of classical dispensationalism. And this is the gospel in these in these moons that you can see progressively growing brighter. It's not different gospels that they were believing in, guys. It's the same gospel, but it was progressively revealed to them over time. And I think it's really important that everyone can understand this concept, because if you start saying that there are different gospels for every dispensation, <clears throat> then that you start putting in these errors like, well, in certain dispensations, in these certain different gospels, your works justified you along. You had to have works that you had to earn some of your salvation by your works. And that's where these errors start creeping in as you start believing all these different gospels. So I hope that this illustration is kind of a simple, clear one that you can understand. Um, so, go ahead, it, Mondo. Just one little thing, and then we can go to the other one is... Um, you know, we, it's important for us to say that as Paul did, as others, <clears throat> we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anybody would boast. Um, Romans 4, if you think you're saved by works, now all of a sudden God owes you something, right? It's a debt. It's not grace. So that's the whole argument there. But what, what are we not saying? We are not saying that works as an outworking of faith, James chapter 2, are not important. Right. Absolutely. Faith produces works. That's James's whole argument in, in chapter two is faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's worthless. What are you talking about? So we understand that the, the typical, the historical phrase that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It, mm -hmm. By definition, faith will produce something. That's Paul's whole or James's whole argument in James two. So I think, I think there's can be some confusion is, well, what about sacrifices? And we'll get to that. Well, what about they had to do this? And we go, yeah, yeah, those are important. Absolutely. But we don't. I don't turn around and do a sacrifice and then say, okay, God, you owe me something now. I, I can, we can, nobody can ever turn to God and say, here's a work that I'm offering up, except in John 6, which is faith, believe <laughs> A work says, according to Romans 4, in any age, 
I've done this, God. You owe me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So that we are saved by grace. And if we do any works, uh, the thief on the cross, he didn't really get a chance. He was saved. But I imagine if, if they would have let him go, he would have came down and, and he would have produced a life of fruit repent of repentance. So we believe that works are absolutely going to come out of a true person. That's that's James's argument, but it's not a basis. It's not. I don't turn around and say God owes me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's so important, Mondo, because I really want you guys all to understand there is not going to be a single person in heaven when we get there who's going to be able to say, I earned like 5% of, you know, see these five merit badges I have here? Mm-hmm. I earned 5% of my, uh, my salvation. No, 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 no. There, there is no one worthy but Christ, and, and no one is going to be able to make that claim in heaven. And so if you start to let this error seep into your mind that, well, some people in certain dispensations did earn part of their salvation, what you are essentially saying is Jesus' blood was not sufficient payment to cover all of mankind. Some people had to earn part of theirs, and that is grave error. So, Pete, let's get into um, let's. This is what we're going to do now, guys. We're going to walk through visually here the dispensations, and Pete has made some great charts here, and we're going to show how. And this goes along with this moon. We've we've we put this in the chart as well. Show how the gospel was progressively illuminated over time to mankind and it's always by grace through faith and we'll show what the content of their faith was in each of these times because there were differences in these times but it's not that they were saved by different gospels that is not the difference so pete which one which uh graph would you want me to pull up here first either one one with the moons or the or the one that's just all blue uh the moons i guess okay we're gonna do that one i got all these images all over my screen here so one second (laughs) okay here we here we go i'm like juggling while you're doing that i'm gonna go ahead and and just say that you know there we go um even though in 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 i hope folks can understand me when I'm saying this, even though God never changes and the plan is the same plan from the beginning, what dispensationalism distinguishes itself by is the economies or stewardships of how God revealed himself to man. Now there's two kinds of, um, uh, Uh, processes for this. The first is that you have progressive revelation. And that is where, you know, it's thus saith the Lord. Somebody is speaking directly from the mouth of God and he's speaking words that go into the Bible. Um, Then you have progressive illumination. And and, and so once the canon of scripture is closed, like the age we're in now, there is no more progressive illumination, but what there is, or progressive revelation, but what there is progressive illumination, 
that people that when when scripture starts to come to pass and things begin to click, it begins to make sense. Right. It begins your your understanding becomes illumined by the Holy Spirit revealing something to you. So the big charge about dispensationalism was going back to Darby was that uh, that it was new and that that uh, it, it, you know, you can't trust it because it's new. Well, the truth is, is that if you go back to the early church fathers, many of them espoused dispensational thoughts. And even Paul, I mean, Paul is the one that lays this out. So the, the, the doctrine goes back to the writing of the Bible, uh, the doctrine of dispensationalism. And it's really how we understand. And all Darby did was systematize this way of looking at the Bible. He no more invented this than Martin Luther invented the five solis, right? He didn't, you know, Martin Luther didn't invent scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He simply systematized what was there. The same thing with Darby. He did not uh, uh, create this out of thin air. This is him looking at the Bible, taking a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible, and, and then just applying common sense. So we're going to look at this. Um, each dispensation, would there be in seven dispensations, uh, and each one has similar characteristics. There's a stewardship there's a point where man fails the the test, so so to speak, or fails the stewardship. Oh man, hold we on, lost a second. Pete. God's mercy. Hey Pete, you dropped Grace out there. And mercy. You dropped out there for a moment, Pete. Do what? You dropped off the screen there for a moment. Okay, am I back on? Yep. Okay, so stewardship, man's failure, uh, God's judgment, and then God's mercy, right? Uh, so we're looking at a eternity past. Obviously, God has this plan going forward. Uh, he does the days of creation. Obviously, we know that God could have created everything in, in a second, in a split second. He didn't need to create the world and the universe in seven days. He did that as a pattern and as a type for mankind. Uh, we see that he gives the stars in the skies and he gives uh, uh, for signs and seasons he gives these things for us, for our benefit. He gave us time for our benefit, right? So he gave us, he divided the this dispensations up into uh, ways that we could understand it that would make sense to us, right? And this has largely been shrouded for millennia by uh, uh, creeds and dogmas in, a, in a, a pretty much a dominant secularized world church system. Right, that tried to suppress this, but but God still is going to get the message out. So we have day one or, or dispensation one. We find that in Genesis one through three, and God is revealed as creator. Uh, you know, Moses when he begins writing Genesis one one, he doesn't go into the backstory of God. He doesn't try to explain who God is. He just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have the the, the five W's in there. He creates man in his image on the sixth day, and then he gives him dominion over the earth. And let me just preface this real quick. Uh, there is way, way, way more. I mean, there is volumes more that I could include in all of this. But just for the sake of brevity and for everybody's sanity, I'm going to just keep it to this. But we could definitely spend hours on just day one. Right. Yep. I mean, there's there's literally so much. And I, I had a really difficult time trying to just narrow it down to to this one little table. 
So God, uh, man is God gives man free will, and he disobeys the law, the one law of not eating from the forbidden tree in the center of the garden. The judgment was the imputation of sin and death on his posterity, as well as being banished from the garden. He's judged. He's you know he's going to have to work by the sweat of his brow. Uh, Eve is now going to have to give uh, uh, childbirth and pain, and she's going to be subject to her husband. And then the serpent is judged, and this is where we get to the proto-evangelium where God tells Satan to his face that somebody out of the race of man is going to come and is going to destroy him. So from the very beginning, from the very beginning, there is this plan that's laid out. Now, Adam didn't know anything else. He did that. I mean, what he was revealed to him at that point in time, he only knew what was, you know, what his life was like in the garden. And he knew right then and there that there was a plan going forward. Mm -hmm. Day two. Adam let and me, Eve are banished me, from the garden. Hey, Pete, let me jump in here Go real ahead. quick. I just want to say, so from like on this day two here for conscience, uh, if you look at the top, you can see the moons. There should probably be just like a little sliver of light here in this moon because like Pete was just saying, Adam knew there was this, there was this foretelling that God gave in, in Genesis 3.15 where he's saying there's going to be a redemption. There's going to be the seed of... of uh, the woman that's going to bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head. And so they had this very small understanding of what God's plan or God's purpose was. And um, it, it gets progressively illuminated over time or, or revealed over time. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, yeah. The picture doesn't really show it that well, but there is a sliver on those. So. Oh, okay. Um, great. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's there. It's there. It's barely there. Um, so day two is, is the dispensation of conscience. Now, when we say conscience, we go with uh, uh, Genesis 4, I believe it's 4-7, where God's having a conversation with Cain. And uh, Abel's sacrifice is accepted and his is not. And so Cain's upset. And God tells him, hey, man, sin is waiting at the door. You have to rule over it. So there's a couple of things right there right off the bat that we know. One is that animal sacrifice is already being in place as a means to cover uh, temporarily uh, their transgressions. Um, and then we have uh, the idea of this is where this idea of conscience comes from, because at the time there was no Bible. You know, they had the stars in the sky. They had uh, presumably interaction with angels, both divine and fallen. And then, you know, Cain is able to talk to God. Uh, and then this happens, you know, Cain, Cain allows his sin to overcome him with anger and wrath. And he strikes down his brother. And then, we, you know, the rest of the story goes from there. From there, the progeny goes and becomes exceedingly wicked. You know, there's about 16, 1700 years there where the human population begins to explode. And uh, what we see is that the world becomes exceedingly wicked. And we know that in, in uh, the time and life of Enoch, because Jude uh, uh, 1.14 tells us that, that he was preaching that Christ was going to return. The Lord is coming with 10,000 of his saints. And so even at that time, they understood that, that their Lord and their, uh, their Savior, their Messiah was going to come and re, re, you know, return judgment on the wicked. Right. There was an understanding of this. Um, God's judgment, you know, by the time that uh, Noah's life comes around, he, God was sorry that he had made man and he decides to end the world in a flood. 
and except for Noah and his family and the animals that were saved, uh, they would find uh, safety and deliverance in the ark. And so in God's grace and mercy after the flood, he gives the Noahic covenant. And this Noahic covenant starts a new dispensation. And each of these start a new dispensation because they begin to change the standard that is in place at this point. Now there's never, God promises never to flood the world again, and he gives them the, the covenant of the rainbow there. Animals are going to fear man uh, because now they're going to be given over to man for, for meat. And, and basically there's no dietary restrictions. The only thing that is in place is that they can't uh, eat or consume the blood from, from the animals. Uh, God establishes fixed seasons, uh, and, and so life is going to continue on until he ends it. And then he institutes this idea of capital punishment, and it requires uh, government to form in order to institute things like capital punishment. There has to be some kind of system in place within a village or within a city to be able to institute something like that. So this is where we move into the the, con the dispensation of human government. And guys, if at any so, point in time you need to go ahead, break in, in, go ahead. Just I think it'd be helpful. Um, to let's say to let's go to Genesis five for a moment. Uh, we're sitting there talking to Enoch, maybe whatever. Um, what does it take for Enoch to be saved? There's there's no laws, there's no commandments, right? There's nothing been given uh, explicitly. So the question I think would be helpful here, for for what does it take for Enoch to be saved? Like number one. He walked with God. God took him. So he has faith in God. But what's the content? What's the knowledge that he knows that's at least explicitly in Scripture? Genesis 3.15. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. So at that time, we recognize that, as, as you mentioned, both on the bottom of this chart, um, we saw that God shed blood in the garden. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So right there at the beginning in the garden, he kills animals to show Adam and Eve, look at what sin does. The wages of sin is death. In order for me to cover you and not annihilate you and obliterate you from existence, I have to kill an animal. And you can imagine them. I mean, how crazy. It's like we're like showing a four-year-old in the sense of them being innocent, that you you bring an animal and you go slit his throat and blood drain the blood out. And then it's just the animal's shaking and then it's dead. And they're like, what is death? Mm. <laughs> so God does this to say right at the beginning, get this on your psyche. The wages yep. of sin is death, but this is going to be an act of grace. And we know later with the fullness that again, without the remission, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Mm. So God is setting the stage right here at the beginning for them to understand the nature of substitution. And then of course, as you mentioned mm. in day two, we don't see any prescriptions specifically for sacrifices. Um, Cain and Abel brought them. We don't, again, we don't have that in the text, but what it takes is faith in God to be saved. And well, what do you believe, Enoch? I believe that God is going to send his redeemer. He's going to be a child, a descendant of the woman. Yep. That's it. That's all I know. We are only required to, at least according to the dispensational progressive dispensation, we are only required to believe with the light that's been given to us. And so then, when we transition into day three, now, as you mentioned in Genesis nine, basically one through nine, there's additional information that's given now. So if we were to fast forward 50 years after the flood, 
And we went to uh, Japheth, one of Noah's sons, and we said, what does it require for Japheth to be saved? What knowledge? It's at least Genesis 3.15. And now we add on the idea of the covenant being made with humanity again. Right. There's more information. One thing I want to I want to make clear to people as we're going along here, we're not we're not in any way saying that these in the Old Testament um, didn't do works. They they did do works, and and these works were prescribed by God. These works were them working out their faith in obedience to the commandments of God, and so the works absolutely happened. We're not saying that they were. <laughs> They had no meaning and they didn't exist. And, and all these people uh, knew Jesus and believed in Jesus. No, no, no. They had faith in God and that was what justified them. And because they had faith in God, they were obedient to his prescriptions and his, and his commandments. And they walked out their faith and their works were simply evidence of their faith. And as far as what they believed in, just as Mondo was just saying, you know, they knew very little early on. They knew... God's going to send a redeemer. And I believe in God. They didn't know his name was Yahweh. Mm -hmm. They didn't know his name was Jesus. They didn't know these things. They knew. But listen, these are not different gospels that they believed in. They're a very small sliver of the eventual whole or fullness that we now understand. And it's the same thing as the moon. Again, if you look at the top of this chart, it's always been there's one moon. But you can see different phases. I think it'd be important to say, too, that whether you're Abel, who's gone, or Seth, you know, basically the replacement in the in the genealogical line, uh, or Enoch, or even Noah, um, <clears throat> these guys had faith in God, and they, they were coming on that information. But did they have perfect obedience? Heavens, no. They're no different than we are. And so at the end of the day... God's grace recognizes that we're sinners, but he looks at the faith they have. Um, again, when we get to the next one, we can just, all we got to do is look at the, the life of Abraham after Genesis 15. Uh, he was accounted righteous there by his faith, but he turns around and he lies, you know, <laughs> and other things. Um, and we go, hey, the, the works that we do, however imperfect they are, um, do not threaten if we truly trust God, because again, hopefully we have short accounts and we ask for forgiveness, but God knows, Hey, I don't expect perfection of you. That's why I have the gospel. So, you know, Habakkuk two, four, the just, (laughs) we are justified by our faith, right? I mean, this is the standard that goes all the way back. The man shall be justified by his faith. So the righteous. So we, we have, I think what's important is that as we get more and more knowledge and we get to the law, Still, perfection in following out the rule of life or the, the expectations of sacrifices still don't. It's like, oh, I missed a sacrifice. I guess I lost my salvation. It, it, I think that could be something, too, that comes into play that someone is, who is truly saved. I'm not saying someone who professes. There's a lot of professors in the sense, I believe, I believe. I don't know what's in their heart. But somebody who is truly saved and has faith in God, that invisible faith that God sees. God says, I know who are mine. So from God's perspective, I don't believe they'll ever lose their salvation because as a true servant and, and person who's saved, 
they're going to live a life that's bent towards God, not perfect by any means. And so if we accidentally miss an obedience, it's like, oh, I lost it. Well, what do I got to do to gain it back? Well, now all of a sudden we're living, we're, we're saved by works again. Yep. Yep. And, and you, you, I was just thinking about how, you know, you, you were, I thought that was a good point that none of these people, yes, they did works. The works were evidence of their faith. They absolutely did these works. They were, but they were evidence of faith. And it was the faith that was um, grant, granted them or accounted to them as righteousness, like with Abraham. But I was thinking about what Jacob said in Genesis uh, 32, verse 10. You know, Jacob also understood this. He said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. You know, he understood that they weren't perfect. They, they did. They were doing what God commanded them to do. But they weren't worthy. They weren't earning any part of their justification. They were not. J- Jacob understood he was not worthy of the least of the mercies that God showed him, even though G- Jacob was being obedient to God. But he understood it wasn't what he was doing that was making him worthy. It was his faith in God and God's <clears throat> grace to him. It's just it can't be more clear, folks, in the scripture. Keep going, Pete. Absolutely. All right, day three, government, Genesis 9 through 11. Man instructed to fill the earth. This is part of that Noahic covenant. And multiply, fill the earth, and, and uh, human rule is established. Uh, there's dietary liberty. There's a lot of changes going on here uh, post-flood, right? And in what happens? Man's failure in this is instead of filling the earth, Noah's descendants begin to congregate on the plains of Shinar, and at a certain point, began to build the Tower of Babel. Now, <clears throat> the judgment. Now, this is kind of a double-edged sword, right? It's it's a double. It's it's double in the sense that it is a judgment, but it's also mercy. And I'll talk about that in a second. God comes down, confuses the language, and scatters man across the earth. Now, this dispersion is a means to preserve mankind. Is still in effect to this day. Prevented man from destroying himself. And what I mean by that is that <clears throat> when when God began with Adam and Eve, it was one race of man, right? And it goes all the way to uh, Genesis 12. There's just the race of man. They're all Gentiles. And out of the Gentiles, God pulls out a man named Abram, says, hey, I'm going to make somebody special out of you, and I want you to go over here and do this thing. So now there's two peoples. There's what would become Jews and now Gentiles. Now here at the Tower of Babel, God saw the danger and saw the... um, could tell right off the bat that if they were allowed to continue down this path, they would quickly destroy themselves and get them back right into a situation uh, where God would again destroy them. Now, this is where I think a lot of uh, confusion comes on with covenant theology, because covenant theology really wants to kind of lump everything together. But God put this division in, in, in place on purpose. God divided mankind up so that we could not be put underneath a singular ruler who would ultimately become corrupted and destroy mankind. And I, I, and I, you know, what God has divided, let not man put together. Right. So it's a double edge. It's a double edge. It's both a judgment, but it was also done to preserve mankind. Um, God could have just wiped everybody out there, but he didn't. He chose to preserve them and spread them over the face of the earth. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Scripture says that he disciplines those whom he loves. 
You know, I mean, that's a mercy. Anytime God disciplines you, that's a mercy. He's trying to get you on the right path. He's trying to protect you from yourself, from your fallen sinful nature. So absolutely, this is these judgments of God are, are mercy and God showing grace and mercy to humankind. So this, this 70 nations that come out of this, the table of nations, let me read real quick from Acts 17, 26. He says, and he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. The idea of nations is from God. It is not, it is not a bad thing. The world is right now trying to race back to get back under one system. And we know that they will because scripture tells us that they will. And that one system will then be taken over by a single man named or whatever his name is, but he will be the antichrist, right? And he will try to destroy the world. So this division was done for our preservation to keep us from all being conquered and, and united in purpose and doing something that would ultimately re result in our destruction. Mm -hmm. So we're going to move to day four promise Genesis uh, 12 through 18 out of the Gentiles. God calls one man named Abram to bless him. Now this was a unconditional covenant and just keep that in mind when we keep going. This was an unconditional covenant that God made uh, on behalf of Abram in Ge Genesis 15. And out of this, God was going to bless him, bless his descendants and, and bless those that blessed him. I mean, this, this was something that God determined to do so now there's two races of people there's jews and there's gentiles now god separated mankind mankind did not separate mankind so abram and sarah he's abraham now and sarah were promised a son but conceived through the midwife and this would perpetuate strife to this day now even though abraham was the the great granddaddy of our faith he made a lot of mistakes you know just like you said earlier he lied he, uh, you know, obviously didn't have enough faith and he, he ended up listening to his wife and had, um, I'm blanking on her name, Hagar, mm -hmm. um, had a child through Hagar, which would be Ishmael, which would perpetuate the strife between the Jews and, you know, what would become the Arabs many thousands of years later. They're still going through these problems because of this, but God still blessed him with the son, Isaac, <clears throat> and through his, uh, progeny, um, God would create this race of people through whom the Messiah would one day come. But in this particular instance, in the promise, you know, you go from Abraham's time all the way down to Joseph and Joseph's descendants and the Jews, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they find themselves in bondage in Egypt, right? Just in misery. And out of God's mercy, he raises up a man named Moses and he's going to lead them out into the promised land. So he leads him out of Egypt, day five, and we see him, uh, we see the plagues, we see the miraculous delivery out of Egypt, and they finally, hey, go ahead. Well, I, again, I, I don't want to move too fast into the next one, because this, in, in the dispensation of promise, there's a lot here, which I think can be explained, um, <clears throat> especially with Abraham, because he <clears throat> appears so much in Romans 4, as well as Galatians 3 and 4, when we... In Genesis 15, uh, God brings Abraham outside. Look at the stars, you know, which I love. And he goes, count the stars. This is going to be your descendants. And he's like, well, how's, how's this going to be? Because, you know, Eliezer is the man of my house, and he's my only guy. And God says, look it up. Look at the stars. I'm going to bring you a son. Okay. And then it says in verse 6, Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So this is super important because in Genesis 15, 6, this is the foundation of the gospel in Galatians 3 that Paul's saying. So the question comes up often, and this would be a good time to address it, mm. is he was justified by faith. Okay, And so we see again in Habakkuk 2, 4, the justified, the ones that are declared righteous, shall live by faith. So here I am as a, as a believer. I'm justified by, by the blood of Christ, by my faith in God. But I live. How do I live? I don't live by works. I mean, I need to be obedient. I understand, I'm understanding that that's a reflection of my faith. But I live by my faith. So when I screw up, I don't freak out. I say, man, I'm so glad that my faith in God, which doesn't currently produce perfection, I'll get that at glorification. I have my faith that saves me, that keeps me saved, that keeps me forgiven, and that relationship with God. So, But the question comes up in James chapter 2 where this is why we discussed this last time. It might be good to bring it up again. Uh, historically, Martin Luther, he, as he's reading uh, the book of Romans, and he's understanding, um, and even Galatians, he's understanding that no man is justified by the works of the law. So he's reading these things, and, and he feels that, well, James should be kicked out of the Bible. But in James chapter 2, it's talking about, again, this faith is never alone. It always produces something. And he said, if you have a faith that doesn't produce obedience, um, then that faith shows itself. Now, perfect obedience, that's not what he said, you know, but it produces some things. But then he says, don't you know that man is not justified by faith alone? Now, that's a huge deal because that's why Martin Luther had the challenge because he said we're justified by faith alone based on Galatians. So do we have a contradiction? Well, we know we don't. But then what James does is James says, let's take an example of our father, Abraham. Didn't Abraham show his justification by the sacrifice of his son, Isaac? So we said this last time that this is how you harmonize Romans 4, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, and James chapter 2. because Ephesians, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, all of it in the sense of the word justification, <laughs> that the, the sacrifice of Isaac came in Genesis 22, seven chapters later. And what I would say is around, if we, if we do the math, possibly 35 to 40 years later from Genesis 15, you have a tremendous amount of time. So now Abraham's matured, man. Here's a guy that was accounted. He believed he was accounted in for righteousness. He gets the child. The child grows up because why? In Genesis 22, this, this isn't a baby. He's not sacrificing a baby. Why do we know that? Because he puts the wood on the baby, on the baby, and the baby carries the wood up. Not going to happen. So the word Ma'ar in Hebrew is this idea of at least a teenager, a young man. So what we, what we know then is when God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son. What is it? Your only son, the one you love. Abraham gets up early the next day, then he is on it. So he's grown. His faith has grown. And now he has an opportunity to demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say that he says no. Well, this is important because this will come up again in Revelation 14. Let's say Abraham said no. Does he lose his salvation? We already know that God said <laughs> He's declared righteous because of his faith. So his faith isn't determined on some specific act, but
But what we do know is that because he has faith, this is something that he will do because his faith works that out in a very specific way. That's going to come up later when we come to the book of Revelation and talking about the mark. So the, the, the reconciliation between James 2 is James is saying, look at Genesis 22 as an outworking of justification by this work based on what? His faith that was established in Genesis 15. There's no way in a million years that James did not understand Genesis 15 verse 6 and that it came earlier. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I want to point out, too, regarding James <laughs> chapter 2, he starts out addressing those who are in Christ. He's talking to believers in Christ because some people will say he's only talking to the Jews or he's only talking to Jewish believers in Christ. He's talking to believers in Christ, those who are in Christ. And I completely agree with you that James is absolutely in harmony with the scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, where it says we are saved by grace through faith and not of our works, lest any man should boast. And when James says, you know, Abraham was justified uh, by his works, what he is saying is in agreement with Scripture in that his works were evidence of his faith. He yep. is not saying that he Abraham's going to get to heaven and say, hey, Jesus, I earned some of my salvation. No, your way. blood didn't cover all my sins. I earned some of mine. That is not <laughs> in a million years what James was <laughs> insinuating. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And even even the issue with circumcision, you know, yep. you know, which came first? Was it was it was Abraham justified by his circumcision or was he um, um, justified by his faith? It was his faith, Before, his faith, yeah. faith, faith. It, you yeah. know, as Roman, as I mean, moving here to this next you're you're about to get into the dispensation of uh, like with Moses and the law. Um, I'm reminded of the scripture in uh, uh, Colossians. Um, 2 16 through 17 and, and paul saying you know let no man judge you regarding meat or drink or respect of a holy day or new moon or sabbath these are the law that paul is describing that god gave for the children of israel to do to work as evidence of their faith um but what does paul say right after that he says these things which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. So again, we go back to here our chart here where we're showing the dispensations. Look at the moon. They're not different gospels. There's one gospel, just like the different phases of the moon are not seven different planets. When you go out and look at the moon at night, it's not a different planet every night that it looks different. It's one moon, but it progressively uh, revealed over time. And so that is what Paul is saying. He's saying all these things in the law time in the Old Testament that God had them do. These are a shadow of the fullness. So it's they believed in the same. Uh, they believed in the same God who had the same eternal gospel plan. But they they just understood a smaller portion of it than we now have, which is the whole, which would be representative of the, of the full moon. So I wanted to, to show you guys that. So what Pete's about to talk about here for day five, Paul understood these things were a shadow of the fullness that was to come. They're not a different thing. They're a, a small part of what the, of the whole. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
Day five, the law, got to go in from Exodus 19, where in, uh, I want to say it's in the beginning of 19. Let's see. Yeah, it says, so uh, let me read this real quick. So all of the nation of Israel, or the, the nation of Israel is gathered for the first time as a nation before Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. Uh, and then comes back down and he's giving, he's saying, okay, we, this is where this idea of this conditional covenant, this is where we see all through the books of Moses when the, once the law is given, if then, right? If you do this, I will do this for you. Then, if you don't do this, then I will do this, right? The if then, um, I don't know what the phrase is that, that uh, Andy Woods uses all the time for this, but here's where the, the, the people of Israel agree in covenant with God to do these things. Exodus 19, starting in verse six or verse five. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. God speaking here, right? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came down and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all of these words which the Lord had commanded, commanded him. And then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the, uh, the people to the Lord. So they, and when you're talking about, and this is not necessarily about the, you know, the three groups we're talking about tonight, but when you're talking about uh, Seventh-day Adventist or Hebrew Roots or any of these other groups that are trying to put the law back in and saying that Christians are under the law, the nation of Israel as a people covenanted with God. The church wasn't even in existence at this point as a, as a reality, right, at this point. We were in the mind of God, but we weren't in existence yet. They, they covenanted with God there at Mount Sinai the first time that they were gathered together as a nation. There's a long trumpet blast there, right? The people are freaking out, the mountains smoking and trembling. So God gives Moses the law to present to the Hebrews as a conditional covenant to which they agreed, which I just read. The failure. So the Israelites and the Hebrews and the later the Jews repeatedly failed in keeping the law over the next 1,400 years. And finally, around the time of Daniel, God gives them 490 years or 70 weeks um, that, that is going to be listed out for their uh, time with them. Mondo, you can maybe go into more detail on that. And at the 483rd year, they crucified their Messiah. So that was their ultimate failure that they, they failed to recognize the season of, of, of uh, the season they were in, that it was the, the first coming of the Messiah. They didn't uh, recognize him or they refused to recognize him and they crucified him. Now the judgment. Now the temple in the holy city was sacked in uh, 70 AD, just as Jesus said it would be. And the Jews were cast in the diaspora for the next 7, 1878 years. And God's mercy in this, though, as prophesied in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 11 and Amos 9, God brought them back a second time from global diaspora to be a nation again. And this is the at, at the right time they will be refined in the last seven years of Daniel seventy weeks that that last seven years of that four hundred ninety years. You want me to stop or keep going? Yeah, no, I think this would be good to stop and just park here for a minute because 
this is important when it comes to the idea of the law and sacrifices and um, the idea of the being saved by grace through faith, even in the law, in, in the period of that. Because let, let me say a couple things. <clears throat> I know some people are watching it and, and they can take notes on this, but um, there's several passages that speak about that the law, the law of Moses, the 613 commands uh, from, uh, from the Exodus 19 all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Those commands were not given to Gentiles at all. This is specifically as Pete read, hey, you're a special people. I've chosen you above all people. And he, that was what he began with Abraham and the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12, all the way down to this period. Uh, Psalm 147, uh, verses 19 and 20 say very clearly that the law was given to the Jews only, the Mosaic law. Uh, Malachi 4.4, the law, it was given to Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8 says very clear Moses saying what other nation out there has the laws and statutes like we do so very clearly this was specific to them but this is this can get pretty complicated and so what I mean by that is you know if you take a class or you read a book you don't need to take a class if you go read a book get a book on Old Testament theology by Walt Kaiser or you know many of the other Old Testament theologians they're going to tell you very clearly what is going on here under the law. So they will talk about two things. This is important that there's personal salvation between me and the Lord. And then there's my relationship in the covenant community as a nation. Okay. So for example, we know in the wilderness generation, and this is the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. This is why this matters is Miriam was Miriam saved. I don't, why wouldn't she be saved? Was Aaron saved? Yeah, I, I imagine Aaron was saved. He was the high priest. But did Miriam or Aaron go into the promised land? No, they didn't. They, they died in the wilderness. And so you have this distinction in Old Testament theology under the law that you have personal salvation, which is always by faith alone between me and the Lord. But as it relates to the community, sometimes there's a judgment that happens that can bring physical death. And so in this case, God says, all of you, I'm killing you all in the wilderness. Not one of you is going to go in except Joshua and Caleb. That doesn't mean none of, none of them were saved spiritually, but they received physical punishment. And so we do see that in the New Testament as well in certain places, 1 Corinthians 11, talking about communion. God has a right to take you. There's sins leading unto death, 1 John 5. So you have this, this connection. So if I'm living under the law and I go down there and God says, hey, um, in order for you to be uh, forgiven, come bring your offering. And I go down there. I'm offering this bull or this lamb. What saves me? It's not that work. It's my faith. But I'm doing this in response to the Lord. And so in reality, here's the second thing. What if I choose? It, it's hard to imagine really, again, we're, nobody deals with perfection. But it's hard to imagine if I'm a true righteous believer in the sense righteousness, Habakkuk 2.4, live by their faith, just like Abraham. If I'm there saved by faith and God gives me a command, I'm going to do my best to try to work it out. Am I going to do it perfectly? No, none of us does that. But the other aspect is if I don't do several of these sacrifices, God says you'll be cut off. Not, that's not a salvation issue necessarily. It means you're going to be, kicked, you're going to be cut off and killed, discipline, physical discipline, away from the national covenant. Now, here's another thing. So, if somebody goes here, here's the question is if somebody goes under the law 
and they're offering a sacrifice in order not to be kicked out of the community, does that automatically mean that they're spiritually saved? Right. It doesn't. But we know, so you have these two systems going on and on. And then when we come to the new covenant, we, we don't live under that national theocratic thing where we, we have a nation. Uh, it's multinational. My salvation, according to Jer- Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant, is personal. This is why <clears throat> this particular covenant that Pete alluded to, the law of Moses is temporary. It's, it is a conditional covenant, which they broke and they lost. This is why the Bible says God divorced them. Jeremiah 31 says, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the one I made, which you broke. So now that we're on after the Acts chapter two and the church begins, we're not under the law anymore. The law has been rendered inoperative. It it lasted until Christ. Uh, It was abolished. There's a lot of verses we could give them if people really wanted them. But regardless, it was grace. God says in Exodus 34 to Moses, the first thing he says under the law is I'm gracious Man, I'm gracious, full of grace. I'm slow to anger. Grace is very active. They're saved by faith, very active. But they're, the commandments that they have are doing, doing uh, sacrifices and other things. But those don't save them. How do we know that? Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats can never, it's impossible to take away sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no removal of sin. So we recognize here that this balance, that the shedding of blood, those, as you mentioned, Colossians 2.16, it's pointing toward the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. This well, is let me, important. Let me step in on this one because I, I like what you said as well earlier about how, speaking of things that are, are pointing towards Jesus, were prophetic of Jesus, how these people of faith in times past were, were saved on credit is how you put it. Yep. I think that was um, a, a, a neat term because think about this, guys. Speaking of like Miriam and Aaron, they 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 were of faith. Just because they were judged and they didn't get to go in the promised land doesn't mean God doomed them to hell. They right. were of faith. They believed in God. But think about this. Their, their salvation uh, was also on credit. And let me explain what I mean by that. We all understand this concept of a bride in waiting, you know, waiting for her groom. Well, why did Jesus have why did Jesus have to go down and proclaim the good news, the gospel to these who were who were in Abraham's bosom? The Bible talks about those who were in Abraham's bosom. They were they were not in the presence of God, the father in heaven. They were in Abraham's bosom. They were waiting for the propitiation of Jesus blood. So their salvation was also on credit. It was also forward looking, waiting for Jesus. It was a small part of the eventual whole. It wasn't a different gospel. It was the same gospel. They knew less of it, but their salvation was in waiting. So they were at Abraham's bosom waiting for the blood of Christ, because that's the only blood that's going to justify them and cleanse them. The, as Mondo said in Hebrews 10, 4, the blood of bulls and rams cannot do it. It was a forward-looking prophetic act of faith that was pointing to Jesus. And so they were waiting in Abraham's bosom for the propitiation of Jesus, which was the fulfillment, the body, the whole of the gospel. That was their justification. So let's, let me ask a question here, and maybe Pete could jump in, because let's go to Luke chapter 1. We're still under the time of the law, right? Jesus said... In Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. So let's go to, let's say, maybe 
10 BC. Um, you have Elizabeth and you have Zacharias. Okay, they're both called righteous. What makes them righteous? What what's the content? We, that means that they're saved. They they're devote they're devoted to God. They're devout uh, believers. What's the requirement? What's the content of their faith? What do they know? Well, by this time, in addition to the law, as as Pete mentioned, let's add all of the prophets. Let's add Psalm twenty two, Isaiah fifty three, Micah five two. All these messianic prophecies. Here they are in ten BC, and you say. Do you have faith in God? Oh, we have faith in God. What do you have faith in? The coming Redeemer. Well, tell us about him. They start listing it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's progressive yeah. revelation. They would know where. Go ahead, Pete. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I mean, even if you go back to the time of Job, which was really the first book in the Bible written, as, as most people believe, in, in Job 19, I mean, he's saying that I know my Redeemer I will see my redeemer one day and with my own eyes, I will see him. And Job, I mean, lived around the time of Abraham. Yeah. In my flesh. So this knowledge of a coming redeemer to save mankind is not hidden. I mean, it's not completely unknown. They just didn't know all of what was going to come, come about that illumination was slowly coming for them. And, And like you said, they waited in Abraham's bosom. And they, the righteous dead waited in there on credit. And one day Christ came at his crucifixion and his death and burial. And he goes down there and says, I'm the one. I'm the one now. that you guys have been looking forward to all these years, right? So, amen. Uh, let's keep going. I don't know where I did my pen. There we go. <clears throat> all right. Uh, where are we at now? God Six. brought them back from... Global diaspora to be a nation again after his prophesied. I'm that's skipping forward in time, but uh, let's go to day six, and we're calling it the last days because it's it's too contentious to label it uh, <laughs> the church dispensation or the dispensation of grace. It's misleading, so we're going to call it from the biblical term the last days, according to Hebrews one one. Um, and maybe you it begins mention- after Christ's resurrection. Yeah, I was just going to say What's maybe that? you want to mention the cross there. Oh, yeah. So we have we have there the you know, when we look at the Gospels up until the point of Christ's death, the 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 old covenant was still in effect. Right. Hebrews nine, uh, nine, says for where there is a testament, there must also ne- uh, by of necessity be the death of the testator. Mm-hmm. So when Christ I put John, John 1930 when he says it is finished, it is yep. finished. The Gospels. Um, are retelling of a life of Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets without fail. He did what no other human in the universe or anybody else could do anywhere. Um, He was the only one. And that is where at the cross he lived and died a perfect sinless life and became the perfect sacrifice that would forever take away all the sins of mankind. For anybody that believed and put their faith and trust in him. If they believed in him, they could find salvation through Christ himself and only Christ. All right. So we call it the last days. We're starting here in Acts chapter two. And this is the the little distinctives that hyper dispensationalists and ultra dispensationalists will say, well, no, no, no. The church didn't begin until Acts nine or Acts 28. No, the Holy Spirit was given here at at the day of Pentecost. 
And those Jewish believers, there was 3,000 of them, became <sighs> what? They, they became born again. They became sealed by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile inside of Christ. You know, male nor female, slave or free, we're all one in Christ. In Christ, there's no distinctions. Clearly, physically, if you become a born-again Christian, you might still be a man or a woman or, you know, uh, you know whatever, Chinese or Iranian or whatever. That's your physical body. But inside of Christ, there's no distinction. So those Jewish believers were just as Christian as we are today, Right. Begins after Christ's resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to create a new body of believers as a mystery kingdom, right? The kingdom has not yet come. The kingdom will come. Uh, just as Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say it, it had already come. He says for the kingdom to come. And the gospel of Christ goes out to all the nations and the age continues until the world gets to where we are today, where it's. Uh, uh, almost universally uh, wicked uh, in, in seeking to basically uh, usher in the age of the Antichrist. And God's judgment in this is going to remove the church from the world at the rapture. And, and that doesn't start the 70th week, but it does set the stage for the 70th week. Because when you have the rapture removing, even if it's 10% of the Christians from just like the United States, for example, that's going to be 30 million people removed instantaneously from this economy and from this system. And that is going to absolutely wreck and crash this, this, this system. And as the U.S. crashes, the world's going to crash. And it's going to set everything up for what uh, is described in Revelation 6 through uh, 19. This might be good the, uh, here. The, well, in the sense of that we, just for clarity's sake, what we're recognizing is that this age, which Jesus called the end of the age, is to his second coming. Uh, and so this age lasts from his, his yeah. ascension. And then 50 days later, as we know in Acts chapter 2, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, uh, bringing something very new, which we know from Acts 11, uh, even into Acts 15, tells us this was the beginning of this new dispensation. You know, Peter says it. He talks about the Gentiles getting saved in the same way under the same experience of the Holy Spirit. So the, the tribulation period is in this age, this age that goes from the sec, the first uh, Jesus's departure to his, his, his second coming. So however people yeah. get saved in this age goes right in to the, uh, the tribulation period. It's, it's, it's clear because, and again, as, as, as we have <coughs> at this point, when you look above day six there, what do you have? You have a full moon. Full it's moon. fully illuminated, baby. I mean, we have the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of, of the death of Christ, as is um, wrote, written in 1 Corinthians 15, as we talked about. But they understood all that. But Paul is writing to the Corinthians who were Greeks and Gentiles who didn't know that. But certainly Peter knew that and John knew that. And all the beginning words Acts, um, Jesus had a lot of explanation in that 40 days after his resurrection. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, point you bring up there, Mondo. It's, it's really important, guys, that you understand what Mondo is just saying here, that this, this last day's dispensation that we're in, which I think is a really, it's a better, more accurate term for this dispensation, the last <laughs> days, uh, from Pentecost 
to the second coming because the gospel is now fully on display. Like if you look at the top of this chart, you see how the moon is progressively illuminates to a full moon. The full moon is not a different planet than the new moon sliver. It's the same planet. It's the same moon. It's the same thing with the gospel. The gospel that we have now, the full, beautiful, glorious, bright picture of Jesus and his payment on the cross by his blood for our sins, that gospel is fully here. We fully know and understand it. And everyone in the tribulation period understands this as well. They will, they will, when, when people are getting saved in the tribulation period, they will be believing in Jesus. It won't be some Old Testament God that they don't know his name. They're not going back to darkness. They have the light of the gospel, the full light of it. They are in this same, and the last days, like according to, if you look at Hosea 6, you know, this is from the time of Christ. Uh, crucifixion and, and, you know, Pentecost and all this to his second coming. Those are the last days and the last 2000 years of, of the work that God has ordained for mankind of six days of work on the seventh day, you shall rest. Again, we're always saved by grace through faith. Works are an evidence of our faith, but the final day is the seventh day of rest, that thousand year reign. And so the tribulation period is within the time of the last days. And they are under the same age that we are under now. There's, there's a change that happens. The rapture happens. But that doesn't mean all of a sudden they're believing in a different gospel. Yeah. They have the mm. complete gospel. It's the, completely intact. And that is, I, I guarantee you, the, the two witnesses, when they come on the scene, the angel that's proclaiming the eternal gospel, in Revelation, they're preaching Jesus. I guarantee you, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. not going to leave his name out of it. No way. Well, let, let's let's ask a question. Okay, how do we know that? Well, two ways. If if we were to ask the question right now, um, you know, I could put you guys on the spot, but it'd just be for redundancy. What does it take right now for a Jewish person to be saved? Are they saved under the Old Testament law? No, they need to believe in Jesus and Messiah. What about a Gentile? Same thing. So when we come to the Book of Revelation especially Revelation 7 and 14, the 144,000 who are out there evangelists, okay, it talks about them being connected with the lamb, okay, very specifically with the lamb, who the lamb that was slain in Revelation 5, right? So Jesus is absolutely central to their message of evangelism, 144,000 Jews to the Jews. And they're not just saying, hey, if you're a Gentile, I'm not interested in you. They're preaching the lamb, the lamb that was slain, Revelation 5. Additionally, we go to Revelation 12, 11, and it says, they overcame the accuser of the brethren. How? By the blood of the lamb and the word lamb. of their testimony. testimony. So here you have the blood. What we're saying, again, there is no remission without blood. And we know the blood every, in every age, the basis for salvation in every age is the death and the blood of Christ. So in the book of Revelation itself, we have the mention of overcoming <coughs> through the blood. We have the lamb being present. And so when you come to Revelation 14 and you see the angel preaching, again, John is like, I've already told you <laughs> the content, which is the blood and the lamb of chapter 5 and chapter 7 and 14 and 12. So th that seven-year period, for a Jew to be saved in that period, so someone had emailed me and said, well, don't you believe that the Jews go back under the law? And 
no, not at all. That they they need to be saved now. And that's the whole point of the seven year tribulation is to get them to the end where they say, blessed is he, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he comes back. Yeah. Jesus, who fulfilled the law, who redeemed those who were under the law. That's who God is driving them to put their faith in. It's not all of a sudden bringing them by law to justify and earn their and, and, and bringing now that I bring up this point of works in, in the tribulation period, um, you know, w- what we're saying here is clearly the tribulation saints are going to be believing in the same gospel that we believe in now, the fully illuminated, fully understood gospel. And this is where some error comes in from. It tries to come in from hyper or ultra dispensationalism and say, uh, no, they're believing in a different gospel during the tribulation period because they don't take the mark of the beast and not taking the mark of the beast is a work that earns part of their salvation. So they're <laughs> different than us in what they believe they're, This is what the hyper dispensation or ultras say. They're different in what they believe. They believe a different gospel because for them, it's faith plus works that earns their salvation. And that's a grave, grave error because uh, not doing something is not a work. No, it's a negative. It's a negative. (laughs) Being a martyr martyr is a work of faith. It's an evidence of faith. And you brought up a good point um, when we were talking about this earlier, Mondo, about Galatians 5, about not doing something. You said, you know, in Galatians 5, 19, it says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lavishness, lasciviousness, um, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, uh, seditions, heresies, um, envyings, murderings, murderings, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you brought up, well, if I don't do these things, like if I just don't murder, then am I getting into heaven? <coughs> no, yeah. you, you are not earning heaven by not doing those things. You and we have already know. faith in Jesus to get into heaven. Not doing those things is not earning your way to heaven. It's the same thing, guys, for the tribulation saints. Not taking the mark of the beast is not them earning their ticket into heaven or part of their ticket into heaven. It is just their faith in Jesus. But because they have faith in Jesus, the same gospel that we do now, they will not take the mark as evidence of their faith. Yeah. I, I think it, this would be good to state that if you do a study of the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, it is... of the time explicitly connected with worship and allegiance. So we know that receiving the mark of the beast, no one's going to take it by accident. People are going to know I'm, I'm, I'm devoting my, I'm committing my worship to the, the antichrist and in, in, in sign of my allegiance, kind of like baptism is um, of our faith in a sign of my allegiance, I will take his mark because I'm going to worship him. But we know, as we said before, that Revelation 13, 8 says everybody's who has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world will not worship <laughs> or, or um, will not worship the beast or be in awe of the beast 
And so by extension, if a person truly is saved and their name is in the Lamb's book of life before the world was, they will not take the mark. So they didn't get in the Lamb's book by not taking the mark. The not taking the mark is a fruit of them being in the Lamb's book of life, which they got through faith. That's the crystal clear distinction that it's not something that's added that put me in there. When I don't do it, the, the writer's saying, hey, don't worry, guys. Nobody who's, whose name is written in that book will ever marvel or worship the beast. Well, do, don't they have to work it out? They, what I'm telling you is they, it will be worked out. It reminds me, one last thing here is, is in John 6, Jesus says three times in verse 37, 44, and 45, he says, all that the Father gives me will come, and I will raise him up on the last day. You're like, oh, man, I'm going to make it. If, if God gives me to the Son, then I will come because, Jesus, there's no gap. <clears throat> oh, well, maybe it's possible that they might. And then Jesus says, don't worry. All the Father gives me, I'll raise him up. Don't worry. And then in John 17, he goes on and on about all the ones that the Father has given me. So we have a guarantee. The word there is this. It's a word of assurance for those that are on the other side. Hopefully everybody goes in the rapture. But if you are there and you have faith in Christ, this is a word of assurance that if your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you get there by faith, you will not take the mark because God will give you the grace needed so you don't. Amen, brother. Pete? Amen. All right, two things. One is that in the, in the chart there, um, at the beginning of it, when it says after the, uh, the Holy Spirit is given, there's two things that people often get confused on. One is that the Holy Spirit is given in a very visible public display of power and glory there in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit was on the earth before that. And the Holy Spirit has been involved in mankind and creation going back to the first day. So the Holy Spirit's going to be there. He was there before, before the day of Pentecost, and he's going to be there after the day of Pentecost, drawing uh, people to Christ. And so when we get down to the bottom there at day six, uh, it says God preserves both the remnant of Gentile saints and Jews, ultimately returning the, to defeat the forces of evil at the second coming, at his second coming. So the Holy Spirit here in Zechariah 12 says, uh, or speaking of the Holy Spirit here in Zechariah 12, speaking of that day and the remnant of the Jews that are going to be saved. And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. They, the Holy Spirit is going to bring them to this point of recognizing that the blinder is going to be lifted off their eyes and they're going to be crying out for Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, there's a remnant of Jews that are saved, according to Zechariah 13, 8 through uh, 9. And it shall come to pass in that land, says the Lord, that two-thirds shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. And these are those and the, the Gentile saints that are we see in uh, Revelation 7 that, that no man can count from every tribe, nation, tongue that will um, that they are dead. But they will obviously be saved through the tribulation, through the 70th week of Daniel. So the Holy Spirit, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, the angels proclaiming the eternal gospel, they are going to be. 
there's going to be so many people that are going to be saved inside of the tribulation. It, it's going to make this last 200 years look like, uh, <laughs> you know, like a like a slow day, you know, like a slow Sunday night service in a small country church. I mean, there's going to be so many people coming to faith in Christ. And uh, Lee Brainerd and I did that revival after rapture um, video. People can go look and check that out. Um, but uh, I, I think we underestimate how many folks are going to get saved during the tribulation. So, yeah, obviously, when they people decide to take the mark of the beast, like Mondo said, this is going to be an actual act, a purposeful uh, uh, act of rebellion against their creator. And there will be no there will be no uh, uh, remorse when they get judged for that. Speaking of um, go to day seven. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, speaking of Brother Lee Brainerd, I just want to thank him for um, he posted um, this live stream tonight and, and recommended for people to watch this because he uh, just wanted to say he agreed with us on this point that this is a very important topic to talk about, that salvation has always been by grace through faith. So I want to thank Brother Lee for stepping in there on the, on this topic and um, pointing to the to the uh, salvation of grace by faith in Jesus. It's so important, guys. Yeah, you want to you want to wrap up the chart here? Yeah, yeah. Let me go through this quickly. Day seven, the kingdom. This was the kingdom that was proclaimed all throughout the Old Testament is finally coming to uh, fruition. Where Christ, after Christ, a victorious second coming and the binding of Satan into the abyss, he's going to rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And this is obviously going to fulfill things like Isaiah sixty six, Isaiah two. Uh, Isaiah 11, other passages uh, all throughout the Old Testament that had talked about the kingdom come. The human population will be returned to living in Edenic-like conditions, and the human population is going to explode. There's going to be so many people in the millennium. Uh, I don't think that uh, we really can comprehend how many folks are going to be there. The uh, redeemed church will be returning with Christ at the second coming, will be ruling and reigning with him. The new Jerusalem will descend from heaven, but it doesn't say that it touches the earth. Uh, we know that this will be the way it is for about a thousand years. And shortly thereafter, there'll be a, a, short, a, a short season where uh, Satan is released. And he will gather an army uh, as, as it's called Gog and Magog, this vast army from the four corners of the earth. And um, obviously, I don't I know there's not four corners in the earth, but the, from the four directions. Right. Um they will be quickly defeated. Uh, they'll go straight right into the great white throne judgment where all the uh, uh, wicked of all time and the unredeemed of all time will stand before God as their creator. They will be cast into the lake of fire along with death and hell and Satan and all of his, demon his demonic forces. And then at this point, uh, or in uh, Revelation uh, 21 and 22, we talk about a new phase in this where the redeemed of all ages are going to be ushering the age to come. Or we rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. Beautiful. Man, I can't wait for that, brothers. I cannot yeah. wait for that. So one one thing, again, I, I just want to remind you guys of, because I, I like to review, because uh, we've covered a lot tonight, but what, one thing I want to <coughs> remind you of is these. there are different, what we, this is a term that man has given them, you know, dispensations. There are different times where God, uh, oops, we lost uh, Mondo there for, there he, he's back now. 
Hey, Mondo. Um, so there are different there are different times where God has revealed His gospel, His purpose to mankind, and they at first they knew very little, and then they knew a little bit more and a little bit more. Just like you see this moon in this chart, it was the same gospel. God had an eternal gospel, a plan in mind. He knew you when He created the foundations of the earth. He knew. You know, if you're a believer watching tonight, he knew that you would have faith in him. He called you. He predestined you. You chose by your free will to put your faith in him, but he knew you would. And so this is a, a beautiful eternal gospel that has always existed. And it, but it's eternal. And God, it was it's from God, but it has progressively been illuminated and revealed to us. And this is really good news, guys, that you understand that salvation justification can only be by faith because if we had to earn part of it none of us would make it and and that is the the scripture gave us the law to to help us understand this uh it says um in in galatians 3 21 through 24 it says is the law then contrary to the promises of god <coughs> certainly not for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Everyone of faith. Now before, it says in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Again, this is that picture of, of you know, being saved on credit, being wait, your salvation waiting on credit. You're waiting for that propitiation for Christ to come. They were in Abraham's bosom waiting for the propitiation of Christ. Because the blood of bulls and rams didn't do it. They could not be in the presence of God the Father in heaven. And so it's what it's saying here. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, the scripture says. So this is, this is how everyone has been justified and will be justified. Mondo, could you touch on, on the millennial kingdom? You know, because will people still be saved by their faith in God or will as some ultra or hyper dispensationalists put it, will they now be working? Will now they be earning their salvation? Is, will it still be by faith? There are several things that we, we know interestingly from uh, the book of Zechariah as well as Ezekiel 40 through 48, that during the millennial period, sacrifices will return and people freak out and go, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Why are, why are sacrifices going to be there? Well, they're there for the same substance reason, substantive reason that they were in, under the law. And that is under the law. Again, as we know, Hebrews 10 doesn't save anything. They pointed forward and <coughs> look there in, in the millennial period. They'll be pointing backward to the once and for all sacrifice that was made, which, again, is the whole uh, uh, theology of Hebrews 10. So in the same way, the when we're there. As we go out, because we're going to be busy sharing the gospel, because as the as the believers go, the natural believers go into the kingdom, 
I think they're going to be married and given in marriage because uh, they're in their natural bodies. We're glorified. So we won't be doing that. Children will be born who are still going to be sinners. Uh, they won't have any demonic or satanic temptation because they're all bound up. But as they grow up, they're going to need to be shared the gospel. And we're going to go, hey, you need to believe in Jesus because that full moon of the image it began in Acts chapter 2, and it goes all the way for the rest of eternity. The full moon will always be there. We always have the knowledge. And they're going to go, well, who's Jesus? And we'll go, well, hey, let's take you to go see him. And so he died on a cross. Here's what the scripture says. Here's the gospel. So in the same way, how do I be saved? The just will live by faith. That's the key for all ages. Amen. Guys, it's so understand. It's so important to understand and take the whole counsel of God. Because listen, if you want to rightly divide, you need to take the whole counsel of God. You cannot start taking one scripture from James and saying there's different gospels and that and then adding in works and saying, OK, well, now because James says this, you've got to add in works. So now you're saved by works. And this time you start getting all bent out of shape. It, it's really this is a very important subject to talk about. This is not. Listen, I want to make this very clear. This is not a divisive topic in that we're not trying to attack people we're not trying to cause contention we're trying we're trying to glorify jesus christ here and say listen guys jesus died on the cross for our sins god had a purpose and a plan for all of us he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross to shed his blood on the cross as payment for our sins so that by believing in him we might have propitiation for our sins and be justified before god so that we can have eternal life this is an awesome news. This is the message of the gospel. That's our message tonight. We are proclaiming the message of the gospel and we are protecting the flock and, and uh, encouraging the flock to have clarity on this subject and not let error seep into your mind and into your doctrine that some people are saved by or justified by their works. That is not the counsel of God. If you want to rightly divide, you must take the entire counsel of God and the entire counsel of God is crystal clear on this subject. Mm, amen. Pete Mondo, do you guys have any uh, closing thoughts here before we wrap it up? We, we've, I think we've done pretty good coverage on this. Yeah. I think uh, just uh, for me, just, you know, understanding that, that the same God who never changes uh, knew before the foundation of the world what the plan was and how he was going to redeem mankind. There are differences in the uh, characteristics of the stewardships and the the economies in which we live as revelation is being given to mankind. So there are differences in those, but there, there's no difference in how man comes to salvation. Uh, same God, same salvation. Uh, uh, what man knew at the time was what, you know, what Mondo was talking about these, what was being revealed in the days of before the flood, the days after the flood, the days before the law, the days after the law and so forth. So um, I hope this, I hope this helps folks to clear up some of the confusion on it. Uh, if there are groups out there that are, are preaching different gospels and all that, I, you just got to steer clear of them and uh, just understand that they're still operating in some, level of confusion or something. So um, thanks. 
Amen, brother. What about you, Mondo? I would say that it's it's pretty fascinating as some of the discussion has gone on because as we mentioned in Galatians 1, 7 through 9, Paul makes the comment that even if an angel from heaven comes preaching a different <laughs> gospel than what I preach, let him be accursed. And yet, interestingly, we have an angel from heaven preaching a gospel in the book of Revelation. So clearly that angel's not cursed. Uh, it's, a, it's a godly angel. So by definition, that angel is not preaching a different gospel than Paul preached. So because why? We're still under that age until the end of the age. So we're still in this dispensation. So just because the tribulation begins doesn't mean that we're at a different age now. So that angel that comes, he's preaching the same exact gospel that Paul preached. Otherwise, nobody in the tribulation should listen to him. A hundred percent. I want to end with these two scriptures here, guys. First Timothy two, five through six, it says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And understand when it says men, it means all men. Okay. Everyone throughout history, every dispensation, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, every dispensation, all which is the testimony given at the proper time. And the proper time was when the fullness of the time came. God, it says in scripture, he sent his son born under the law of a woman. That is when the proper time. That was when the full illumination of the gospel began to show. And we have Christ on the cross and we have Paul's preaching and Peter and all. The full illumination, the full understanding of that purpose that God had ordained from the foundations of the world was now visible and it's it is visible today and it will be visible in the tribulation period as well and i want to read hebrews 10 verse 4 one more time for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins it is the blood of jesus christ that's that is the propitiation for all mankind and it absolutely was sufficient payment for all mankind there is not need for one human to step up and earn some of their salvation because Jesus Christ's blood paid it all. He said on the cross, it is finished <clears throat> to tell us die. And thank, thank God for that, that it is finished, that Jesus' blood paid the price. He worked the work that we could never do as humans. Do you and have, our salvation is by grace through faith. Thank you, you have, Lord, for that. Do you have Hebrews chapter 10 open? Yeah, sure. I can get that right now. Yeah, read read verse 14 because that verse 14 has always been such an encouragement to me. It's a summary of the previous you know, 13 verses. Yes. But for those that might be struggling again for, oh, no, I don't live up to this, but I have faith. Again, we all struggle. There's not a single person that's perfect. God knows that. Heavens, he didn't say, okay, now that I saved you, go live perfectly. We, we, we come to that place of recognizing that my sins, past, present, future, in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, we're there, but Hebrews ten fourteen is such an encouragement. Yes, it says, "For by one offering he hath perfected forever, forever, them that are sanctified." Man, I'm going to sleep well tonight because of that one offering that Jesus did. <laughs> Amen to that. And listen, Amen. guys. Let, I guess can you really quickly? I, I think this would be a. It wouldn't be a good to kind of have this lengthy discussion on the gospel without closing with the gospel in very simple terms. Um, 
So let's let's share the gospel real quick. I'm going to read uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is a very simple, beautiful gospel, guys. Um, we, maybe you guys could share one or two scriptures on this subject as well, or, or a word on just share the gospel. Go ahead, Pete. I could, I'll, while Go you're on, going, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll read Ephesians 2 8 through 10 as well. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right. I'm reading from Hebrews 12, 2. Uh, maybe starting verse 1, actually. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. <clears throat> he is well, the guys, author. He's the finisher of our faith. Guys, thank you for being here tonight, Pete and Mondo. Uh, I really appreciate your wisdom and your insight on this topic. And and guys, everyone listening, I hope you were encouraged. I hope you were edified. I hope things were uh, made clear. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would use this to edify and encourage the body of Christ. Um, our goal is simply to point to Jesus and point to the truth. And uh, the, this, this teaching tonight is not about uh, topics and labels. It's about the gospel. That's plain and simple what it's about tonight, our message tonight, and, and passion for the gospel. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you. And uh, until I see you next time, um, good night, guys.